podcast. I am Maggie Coomer. And I'm Jasmine Brand. And we want to thank y'all for joining us today for this very special episode. This is a companion episode to last week's episode about Julia Stewart Points. We fell down the rabbit hole researching communism and the history of communism in the United States. We thought that was particularly fascinating. So what you're going to hear now is really a, a conversation about all the research that we've compiled. And you'll get some nuggets of how we feel about things. Uh, the point of this is just to get you thinking. We're not telling you what to think. Just start thinking. And maybe you can redo some research on your own. But uh, we are going to tackle the history of communism in the United States. So let's crack into it. I want to start by giving you a few definitions of terms we're going to be referring to throughout this podcast. So starting with communism. This is a political theory derived from Karl Marx advocating class war and leading to a society in which all property is publicly owned and each person works and is paid according to their abilities and needs. Marxism is another term we're going to touch on briefly, and that is the political and economic theories from Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels, who I'll talk about in just a moment. Marxism would later be developed into the theory and practice of communism. And part of the point of Marxism is to have those developments. So each person who picks it up is supposed to essentially run with it and make it into their own in some form or fashion. And we're going to talk about that later on as well. Karl Marx and Friedrich Engels would independently establish themselves in the German philosophical world. Both men were interested in very similar things, social revolution, political theory, obviously philosophy, economy, and history, and would start corresponding once their ideas are, well, proven to be very unpopular. Marx would actually move to Paris before they even meet, and the two will meet in a little cafe in 1844, becoming very close friends. From there, they'll go on to develop Marxist theory or Marxism and start to write together, most notably four years later in 1848, publishing the Communist Manifesto. Now, Marx would become exiled and stateless. So even though he was a German national, he'll end up living in Paris for a little bit before eventually ending up in London, where he will live for the rest of his life. And just a side note, or as Maggie would say, a fun fact, Marx was strongly abolitionist and wrote for the New York Daily Tribune during his time in London, at least up until the 1860s, when the newspaper changed its stance during the American Civil War to promote immediate peace between the warring states. And Marx didn't quite agree with that stance. He wanted them to be pro-abolition all the way. I really... I just from what I have read and every all the research that I've done, I would like to make an argument that the Communist Party, the, the excuse me, the Communist Manifesto, at least Karl Marx's ideas are, are essentially evolving, starting with the Declaration of Independence. You have Enlightenment philosophies that are flowing throughout Europe and the United States then you have the French Revolution in 1789. You have the Declaration of the Rights of Man and Citizen. And fun fact, uh, Thomas Jefferson also helped collaborate on that for the French. And I believe in that document, or at least it, as a result of that document, the French end up abolishing slavery in the colonies. And then you have the Haitian Revolution that follows after that. So you have workers rising up as a result of these declarations of independence, declarations of rights. Then you get to 1848. Karl Marx is writing the Communist Manifesto. Then you have the revolutions of 1848. Throughout Europe, liberals who are rising up, they, they want the, the common man, the quote unquote common man to have more autonomy in their societies. Those revolutions are quickly quashed. Karl Marx feels dejected. He and Ingalls uh, both end up in London. And Karl Marx ends up spending the rest of his life in London after that. And then in 1864, you have the first international, which we mentioned in the Juliet Points episode. And from there, I think you see a resurgence in Karl Marx. And he starts to believe that the revolution is possible again. And that's right around the time, you know, this is taking place in England. 
However, that's right around the time the end of the American Civil War. After that, the American economy and infrastructure has to be rebuilt, especially throughout the American South. So you have a lot of manual labor taking place. You have the Transcontinental Railroad, and then you start to see the emergence of railroad unions after horrible working conditions, you know, while building these transcontinental railroads. And so while you, you see the emergence of these kind of workers' rights movements, then you have the establishment of the American Socialist Party in 1901. And then you have the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. You know, a lot of American socialists are going to take this as the, oh, my God, this is the moment. It, it, I think for a long time, it was a big clash between how do we how do we make this perfect society? Do we renovate our current society, which I think is more along the lines of socialist ideals, right? It's not necessarily about a revolution. It's about reform. And then you have communism, especially the, the Bolshevik style of communism, the Bolshevik brand of communism, where it's let's demolish this entire system and build it again from the ground up. And at that moment, you know, Soviet, the Soviet Union becomes this mecca for people who believe that you can have a society built on equal rights. And it just turns out to be a complete fallacy and completely disillusions everyone, especially in the United States. It's a really hard hit when, you know, Khrushchev comes out with his his secret speech and, and exposes Stalin. So in all honesty, I think I think workers movements and movements that represent um, the quote unquote, this almost mythical common man. These, these movements, I think, really represent the core values of what America was meant to be. Right. Which is people who are who are not a part of a of a hierarchy of power necessarily, and they want to have autonomy and control over their own lives. Now, whether or not there's great hypocrisy in the establishment of, our, of the United States, that's a story for another day. But I think that at its core, it's about regular common people having power and control over their own lives. And if they're going to be governed, they're going to be governed by their peers. That's, I think that's, that's how it starts. So a socialist movement, or at least socialist principles, in regards to workers having control over their own labor and not being exploitable, I think, what can be more American than that? What can be more American than that? But many people who are consuming, you know, at the, at the turn of the 20th century, many people are consuming communist literature, specifically Marxist literature, the Communist Manifesto, the one of the most memorable things about the Communist Manifesto is the call for workers to rise up and violently take back their power, right? When you start and, you know, collectivism in regards to property. Another American principle is the right to hold on to your property. No taxation without representation. Property is a, I feel like, is a, a linchpin in the American consciousness. So when you start talking about stripping property away from people and giving it to somebody else, nothing sends a shiver down the spine of a, a, of a quote unquote American patriot, I think, than the idea of someone coming into my home and taking my stuff and giving it to someone else. So I think that to, to reconcile these two ideas as as we see in these revolutions that happen, you know, the Russian Revolution, I think this makes people take a hardline stance of this is bad. This is violent. This is they're trying to completely dismantle my way of life. If you're a person of means, that's going to be really, really terrifying. And for the most part, the United States is, is controlled by people of means, people who have the capital to get to positions of power, people who have the capital to get noticed by, quote unquote, the common man. So, I mean, I don't know. Does that make sense? I mean, yeah, it absolutely does. But is it also very American to overthrow the powers that be when you don't exactly agree with what they're doing or when they don't exactly represent you? Ah, so there you go. Yeah. So th so that I feel like there right there we just displayed the two schools of thought because there are so for instance in the early 20th century you have this is like the heyday of the union this is like the rise of the workers unions okay and you have really two schools of thought when it comes to uh, socialism and, and quote unquote communism in in marxist theory socialism is just a hop skip and a jump to dismantling capitalism and establishing communism 
communism is supposed to be the full realization of human potential in forms of government is is, is how I understand it, which makes it all the more there, there's so much irony because it's in that respect. Shouldn't it be the United States that becomes communist before Russia? But no, because I think in Russia, you have clear caste systems. You have clear class warfare at the turn of the 20th century, which makes it ripe for revolution. Whereas in the United States around the turn of the 20th century, there are a lot of people who are doing well. There are a lot of people who are not, right? But the people who are doing well are going to step in on the side of capitalism. Yeah. Well, and also with America, I think it's unique in the fact of it wasn't set up on a class system. So you have mobility, you have social mobility that really no other country demonstrates in the same way. And that's why we left, well, left England, (laughs) saying it politely. But that's why, you know, we had that revolution. It was for that opportunity. And I think that's what a lot of people fight for is the opportunity to change their social system, even though, as we, you know, can see today, that doesn't always work in the way that it's intended to. Yeah, when the United States politely excused themselves from England. (laughs) Yes. When we politely said, (laughs) excuse me, sir, I would love to have my freedom. Thank you so much. It's been lovely. (laughs) And fuck your tea. (laughs) And fuck your tea. Yeah, exactly. So um, around the turn of the century, you have the gathering of socialist support in the United States. You have two main schools of thought. You have Orthodox Marxists. They love revolutionary political parties, a.k.a the Bolsheviks. They believe that this is a a political maneuver. You have to make serious changes with revolutionary political parties. You have to overthrow the bourgeoisie, essentially. All right. Then you have the syndicalists. They love revolutionary trade unions. All right. So they don't want to give control to a third party. This is really about grassroots organization of workers themselves. That means strike, strike, strike. These are going to be the ones who are really advocating for your industrial workers, your meat processing plant workers, your railroad workers, they need to strike. They need to take these these things into their own hands to make collective change. It's collective bargaining, essentially. And I think that the American Socialist Party and the American Communist Party, this is where they, they split off, right? Would you agree? I mean... Because I think the American Communist Party grows out of, A, Bolshevism, and B, essentially grows from this, like, a lot of American socialists are members of the the uh, Socialist Labor Party, Labor Union, Socialist Labor Union, they become members of the, commun- the CPUSA in 1919, right? Yeah. Yeah, because that's what they're trying to appeal to, too. They're trying to appeal to the labor unions, and they don't necessarily market themselves as pure communist um, when they're first getting their start, although, of course, they call themselves the CPUSA. In the years leading up to that, they'll side with the labor unions. They'll work as like a labor party almost. And so, yeah, they're they're trying to ease their way into it and get people used to the idea, I think, of here's what this is. And look, you're already doing it. So this is really easy now to follow. Well, you have Julia Stewart, people like Julia Stewart points. She's representing labor unions, you know, uh, the American Ladies Garment Association in 1915. And she's going to bring that to the table when establishing the Communist Party of the USA. You know, so you I think it starts as a labor movement. It turns into, you know, much more of a an ideology of equality for all. In, in all walks of life, not just labor, I think is what it morphs into. Well, and they really cement that with their slogan that they come out with right in 1919. It's black and white, unite and fight. And I know that doesn't sound inclusive of everyone, but that was its intention. It's it's including women. It's including people of all different backgrounds, races, classes, everyone. And again, it's that idea going back to well, fighting for the rights that you deserve and need. And again, marrying that with the communist ideals of that and the American ideals of you have to take what you want. And I I mean, I got into, and this is where I do get a little bit 
muddy with communism, but when I was looking into all of this, there seems to be two main schools of thought being thrown around at this time based on Lenin's version of Marxism or communism and then Trotsky's version. From what I can tell, they're basically the same. It's just how they're getting to their same points. Um, And I would say, and again, I don't know if I'm right on this, but just a little bit of what I was reading, most most people who were following the CPUSA are following a Trotsky version of that, which is based in labor. So, you know, we have to be in constant revolution, but not necessarily violent revolution. It's just so you constantly are making sure that the workers and the working class is supported in that sense. Whereas Lenin had a bit more of an idea of dictatorship and it makes sense based on who he was and what he's doing. Yeah. So you have your, your three, your three main players, you have Lenin, you have Stalin and you have Trotsky. Now, when Lenin comes to power in 1917, his, he has the eye on the spread of communism. It's the, it's, it's the spread, which would call for pretty much constant revolution to overthrow uh, it's to overthrow the the bourgeoisie. It's it's the dictatorship of the proletariat. So it, it's this idea of collective leadership. Trotsky, I, I think, is along those same lines. Uh, constant revolution appeals to him. I think to break it down is it's just this the idea of constant improvement, and that if you become stagnant. You know, the powers that be will just overthrow it again. You'll have somebody who wants to take power. They'll do it and completely dismantle this beautiful ideology. Then you have Stalin, right, who we, we know the story of Stalin. But Stalin, his idea of how to essentially make make communists the strongest or excuse me, Russia, the, the, the strongest communist state it can be is sort of just complete industrialization and making them the strongest nation they can be so they can propel the spread of communism. And we see that as they start to back Eastern European countries after World War One in the mid 20s, as communist leaders are being established through in other countries as well. And so when when Lenin dies in 1924, at that point, Lenin Lenin thought Stalin was horrible. He thought he was rude. He thought that he lacked the the virtues that a, a true fighter of communism, of Marxism, should have. And apparently, Trotsky was either ill or he was out of the country. And so Stalin, who was a secretary general at the time, he just moves in. He just like elbows his way to the top and and takes power. And at that point, that's a that's where this this deep seated battle between Trotsky and Stalin starts to grow. And by 1828, Stalin is going to say, get the heck out of my country. I think uh, Trotsky ends up in, in Mexico and he ends up getting assassinated in the 30s. Uh, and with and with that, it, you know, it, it's essentially the end of this constant revolutionary fervor because Stalin is going to stamp out anyone who doesn't agree with them by the end of the 1930s. Yeah. And a big part of their contention as well was Stalin, as he starts to fail in other countries, kind of pulls back into Russia and the Soviet Union and just focuses on making what he can control as communist as possible rather than the spread, which, as we were talking about, Trotsky is really focused on the spread of communism because, again, you can't defeat capitalism or evolve capitalism unless if it's everywhere, right? You can't have these two systems working together. And I think that's where their main point of contention is, if I've read that correctly, if I've interpreted that correctly, um, because they're using the same basis for their ideologies. But um, again, Stalin going down the corruption path and going down the dictator path. And if you don't agree with me, you're wrong versus Trotsky. He's like, well, we just need to bring this to everyone. And I'm sure, you know, there are points with him that I just haven't found. Um, And I'm not saying that he was an entirely good guy either, but that's their main ideological battle. Oh, and you mentioned young Stalin. Talk about young Stalin. 
So I don't really have anything to say about young Stalin past. If you Google a picture of him, he is very. I mean, he has great hair, great but hair. man, you can see the crazy. In the I know. Eyes. I did. No, I did send really that can. picture to my mom, and she said, "Well, you know, the devil's really attractive too." So. <laughs> Oh dang! I know, I know. So, <laughs> she, Mom gets real. <laughs> she she's not she she's a fan. Well, no, she I should say she's not a fan of Stalin. She'd be very upset with me. Um, but yeah, young Stalin. You know, he's this attractive young guy. I think you were talking about his bravado and how he just kind of elbows his way in. He's confident, and he's got that confidence that, well, a a young attractive guy who's kind of been able to get his way up in politics has been able to and kind of throws a tantrum and I know that's minimalizing it a lot kind of throws a tantrum when he's not getting his own way um and so well he becomes increasingly paranoid about everything and he you know what what Khrushchev's speech was talking about was you know Lenin was really against this this essentially the the cult of individualism right which is America do a T. Don't tell me what the hell to do. Uh, and his argument was that Stalin became the cult of personality, the cult of individualism. So he he it was the the great irony of of the Soviet Union, and that Stalin killed anyone who opposed him, killed anyone who disagreed with him, or it was even thought to have to have a disagreeing thought in their head like it was there was absolutely no like the whatever whatever system Stalin had in his mind of distinguishing traitors from non-traitors was basically like you're wearing the wrong color today you've got to go like it essentially was just and all right now make sure they confess right let's go let's make sure we torture this person until they tell us exactly what we want to hear which is really no better than like the English monarchies of the 14th, 15th and 16th century. You're you're going back. I mean, it's it's just there's so much hypocrisy in this system. I mean, there's hypocrisy everywhere. You can't you can't swing a dead cat without hitting some some hypocrite, right? Myself included, I'm sure. But it's just really interesting to see some of the tactics that are taken are medieval. And I just I don't know. It's really interesting. But uh I wanted to say Stalin. Did you have you ever heard about it's his first wife was like the love of his life. She she apparently was his guiding light and and sparked something good in him. And when she died, I think her name was Katerina, when she died, apparently she took everything good that Stalin had, which I think is a really interesting kind of myth about him, right? It was it was the almost like it was this woman's fault. She died and made this horrific dictator. Isn't that interesting? That that that's a that's a story. It's like Joseph Stalin, you know the the devastated lover, the devastated husband. Yeah, but that's not an excuse for killing millions of people. <laughs> and I'm not saying you were saying that, but you know, it's it's just I feel like that is it's a it's a pretty story. It would make a nice movie, but it's. You know, you can't blame your actions on any anyone else. And that's a big, big issue with that. But but go ahead. I think that that has come with with Joseph Stalin's image. You know, the United States and then World War Two, once uh, once Roosevelt and Churchill and Stalin sign their agreement essentially to, to become the, the allies to unify and defeat Hitler and Mussolini and the, and the Japanese. uh the American press features Stalin on Time magazine. They start calling him un- Uncle Joe, right? And it's really interesting to see this larger-than-life figure that has been created in the public consciousness. And I'm, and that's what I mean by, like, you know, this this adds to his mystique. He had this long-lost love who died in childbirth and, and that her death devastated him and turned him into this psychotic. Now, keep in mind, she died in 1907. So how does that play into yeah. the 1930s, Anything 40s, he and 50s? does years and years exactly. later. Like, exactly. I'm sorry. No, one, that's that's really interesting. no one is that heartbroken. <laughs> God damn, you know. <laughs> so just really a little interesting tidbit. <laughs> um i'm heartbroken i must kill everyone yeah you know it's like god definitely want to talk about 
the communist the CPUSA in during the Great Depression. Yeah, you, know, you see record I think record membership levels in the CPUSA because you have a quarter of the American workforce unemployed. People are hungry. People are starving to death. And it's pretty easy to see why you can jump to a, an ideology that supports equality and distribution of property. I don't think it's that hard to envision why that happened. My, uh, my favorite point of all of that is you have, well, basically from the start of the Great Depression, you have the unemployed councils pushing for unemployment insurance and all of these benefits for unemployed and workers and, you know, basically all of the rights that we enjoy today. And it, yeah, the New Deal. The and New they're Deal. like, oh, it's yeah. saving capitalism, but it's coming from a communist idea. Um, and that's just really interesting to me that they're taking this and kind of re remarketing it so it's more palatable for a wider audience. And I don't know. What do you what do you think on that? I think that in the 30s, Americans, you know, who aren't necessarily in great socioeconomic positions start to think if the government isn't here to serve the people, why does it exist? And I don't think there's anything more terrifying for a government to have a quarter of the workforce unemployed and stewing in their own hunger and poverty. And then you have people who are injecting these communist ideals and socialist ideals into formerly staunch capitalist workers. And so I think FDR saw the handwriting on the wall and said, we've got to do something or life as we know it is going to cease to exist, which for a lot of people it already did. But people started really challenging, why does this government exist if it doesn't serve the people? We're, we're taxpaying citizens, right? Isn't that supposed to help me in times of need? Which I don't think is that out of bounds, honestly. You know? No, I just, that was one of the really interesting points to me is this kind of adoption of communist ideas, but putting them under the guise of capitalism. And um, I was talking, yeah, I was talking and I don't know how, where this comes from or what theory it comes from, but I was talking to someone and they were, it, they, they were explaining a theory that they had read about how communism and capitalism kind of just travels in this circle and you kind of go in and out of both systems because of what is necessary due to the economy and people's rights and workers' rights and all of the different things that we go through. And if you look at this timeline that we're looking at, you can see that dip into communist ideas and then this spike of capitalism and up and down throughout, what, the last hundred years plus? <laughs> Uh, at a company that I worked for, we had anti-union training. It was like very hush-hush, but we all the middle managers were like shoved into a room and we had a full eight-hour training on how to keep the employees from unionizing. Is that not crazy? I mean, it, and it, of course it's not, it was never in those, in those exact explicit terms, right? Because that would, I'm sure would be illegal. Uh, but it was more like, why is unionization bad for us? Why we, <laughs> why when you hear someone say the word union, you got to tell us about it. All right. Cause we got to handle this. All right. Or else everything is going to crumble and die before our very eyes. Like that was essentially, it was like the scariest thing that you could ever possibly do. Uh, and that's in 2015. So let's let's continue with the 1930s. So we have the we have the Communist Party gaining steam among workers out of work uh, workers in the U.S. during the Great Depression. We have the New Deal, right, which brings in unemployment insurance, Social Security. A lot of the programs that we continue to enjoy today are going to be inspired from more of a socialist point of view, just from a political ideology, purely purely politically you know, motivated here from an ideology standpoint. Then you have, at this point throughout the 30s, the CPUSA and the Communist Party as a whole are largely anti-fascist. I mean, staunchly anti-fascist. This is a, 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 I would say a pillar of communism is that they are anti-fascist, right? AKA anti-Hitler. And so Stalin and Hitler are mortal enemies 
in every respect. But in 1939, you have Stalin and Hitler signing an anti-aggression pact. And this sends international communists reeling. This is a turning point. A lot of the membership drops in for the, the CPUSA because of this party line. And in that documentary, American Reds, uh, one of the historians talking said that after that point, if you were spending three, four years in the Communist Party and you continued on, your allegiance went from the from the movement to the party because the party's line changed constantly. They were never there was not a lot of continuity. I'll say that. And so I think that's where you see really all eyes turn to Moscow, all eyes turn to the Soviet Union as this this machine that can do no wrong. And then in the 50s, that crumbles when Stalin is essentially outed by Khrushchev. Yeah, I think you've put it really well. I think Stalin changes his mind a lot. I mean, even just looking at what we touched on last week with, um, what was it, the Great Terror, the Great Purge, and how he, he keeps changing who, who his enemies are. And it's not just that fascists are his enemies, which is what they're supposed to be standing for or racists or misogynist like he's it's not all the bolsheviks it's yes. all the old bolsheviks who have been members of the communist party since like 1900 he's wiping them all out yeah so he's essentially turning on the foundation of communism and there is the theory within communism that it's supposed to continue to evolve so from his point of view i don't know if he's thinking that he is evolving the Communist Party by getting rid of the old um, and propelling his own version of Marxism. Um, I still think that's very extreme. I think basically commits genocide um, of the the Polish Soviet Union members and all sorts uh, all sorts of people. The bourgeoisie he wipes out. He goes for anyone that opposes him, anyone that supports Trotsky, anyone that is well, like you said, old old communist. It becomes this very, like, insular terror... A terrorist group. Group. Yeah, yeah. terror group. Well, terrorist group. Mm-hmm. Well, and think about it. Stalin is controlling the message. So you have the common turn, which is essentially communists internationally are praying to the Soviet Union, right? The Soviet Union is their grand experiment. Anything that's coming out of the Soviet Union is supposed to be taken without question. You have... Stalin is putting these people on trial... He is inciting confessions from these old Bolsheviks after serious amounts of torture. So he's essentially torturing people into actually saying what he wants them to say. And then he uses that as evidence of their guilt and then has them executed. And so uh, I think in the American Reds documentary, they talked a lot about you did not question the Soviet Union. Whatever moves they were making, you believed in that so much they were doing the right thing. So there's this constant fear in people being anti-revolutionary, anti-communist in the Soviet Union. So if there's even a whisper or a breath, your entire life, your reputation is completely obliterated. And I'll give you a good example of this. So in in the United States, in the, the CPUSA, there's a man named Earl Browder, okay? And he is the leader pretty much through the 30s and into the into the early 40s. And right after the pact that happens between Stalin and Churchill and um, Roosevelt, I think I think that's in Iran. They they meet in Iran, and uh, that's in 1943, and decide to become allies. Uh, Browder takes this as an incentive to unify the Communist Party in the United States on the on the political platform of the United States, and so they dissolve the CPUSA and they establish the Communist political association and it essentially becomes the far left all right so it becomes a a part of the democratic party essentially in today's terms all right so they're radical left but they are now in the political system of the united states and stalin has a conniption fit this is not this is not how you're supposed to you were you are supposed to pay homage to russia at all times you are working for russia the communist party usa is supposed to be an extension of moscow and so browder is ousted and in that documentary it said that he, within a week he get, he gets kicked out of the communist party 
And within a week, his his lawyer, his dentist, and his like veterinarian send him letters dropping him. Like he becomes a complete and total mar- like pariah is how this man described him, which I think is really interesting. But that's a great that's a great example. If you don't toe that line and do exactly what Ru- if you deviate at all from what Moscow is telling you during the Stalinist era, you're done. You are completely done. If he doesn't kill you, you will be ousted for the rest of your life. And I think I think Browder ends up like retiring in Yonkers, New York <laughs> or something and like just writes political pamphlets. But like his career is essentially over after that. Yeah. Yeah. And there's I mean, there's a lot of that. There's a lot of stories like that. And there's also a lot of stories of that happening during both Red Scares. I mean, if the um the government showed up and started questioning your work and looking into your life that ended your reputation as well. So it was, it was a dangerous thing to start to get involved with communism, but it was so attractive in those earlier days and it was attractive for all the reasons that we outlined it. It allowed people who otherwise wouldn't have had any kind of voice in politics or a very, very small voice in politics to get involved in in a real way. And it was threatening. It was threatening to the established government that already existed. It was threatening to, <clears throat> excuse me, it was threatening to our two party system. And we see that with the Red Summer in 1919, with just the slaughter of who knows how many people that were involved or accused of being involved with communism because, well, white supremacy. Well, just, yeah. So break down the Red Summer because you, this, you really got into this. This really sparked your your curiosity. So tell us, tell us all about it. Yeah. So the Red Summer was something that I hadn't honestly heard of before. Um, This is Beth (laughs) introduced me to this um, through an article. Yeah. So Beth uh, posted an article. So Beth, if you're listening, thank you. Um, You didn't know that you, you got me this into it, but she posted an article and it was talking about what happened in 1919 and the red summer it, it honestly went for a little bit longer it was from about april of that year until november and um essentially what you started to see happening was you have the establishment of the cpusa you have a lot of black people and women joining this and a lot of white men really angry that this could be a real party. This could challenge their traditional views of government and how it works. And honestly, these people had no business being in their government. They had no no place in it. It wasn't for them. What do they even think they're doing? And you have this anger building. And um, according to this article, and, and we'll post it in the show notes, um, it's honestly the same temperament as what we're seeing today. They had the Spanish flu and they're on the third wave by 1919. People have been indoors. People are dying. People are just like at a boiling point. And so people that we would refer to as white supremacists today, or at the very, very least racist, um, maybe even sexist, take to the streets and in every major American city start, well, protesting which turns into rioting which turns into mob uh, mentality which turns into murder um across across the across the country and really the government doesn't do anything um they say they agree with the mobs that the the people that they're attacking have no business doing what they're doing they have no place in in government let alone to try and change their lot in society they should feel should feel right about where they are and not try and go for civil rights or women's rights or any of those things that, that the communist party is putting out there. And how often are we all told that (laughs) regardless of our, our background? Um, and you really see, I, I mean, just literal murder on the streets of major American cities. And it's, it's bloody, it's gory, it's nothing that I ever learned about in history class or even through all of the different <laughs> degree programs and certificates I've taken. And I'm I'm honestly kind of mad about it because it was a major point in history. And whether you agree with communism or you don't, it did give a platform to the people who then ended up murdered. And I found a really good quote um, from the New York Times. And they said that... Let's see. They justified, essentially, 
they justified the murder of citizens um, because the Civil War, yeah, they're going back to the one that was like, what, 50 years before this took place, had, quote, bestowed on the black man opportunities far in advance of those he had any other part of in a white man's world. So in other, way, in other words he was living in a white man's world, he should feel privileged to be where he's at now. And I really think that sentiment, yeah, that sentiment still rings true. How, how many people have been told just comply? Like it's, to me, it's the same. It's the same excuse. Why are you trying to make a stink? Why are you trying to make everyone's life harder? Why can't you just enjoy the life that you have and not, not push back? You know, I mean, I think that's, that's what we're sold time and time again. Why? Why are you trying to make a stink? Yeah. And when that doesn't work, when that doesn't work and like, you know, black, the black community is like, no, we're not just going to take this. And in fact, W.E.B. Du Bois even steps in at this point and he's like, well, you know, it's this shouldn't be happening, but but we're going to defend ourselves. And he says in the New York Times and they quote him, miss, they quote him and then say, well, see, black people are violent. And this is literally what he says in in their their quoting of him he, he says that today we rise the terrible weapon of self-defense when the armed lynchers gather we must too gather armed and so they take that and they say well see black people let's, are armed not we, we have to kill the them. context of what he's saying self-defense you know <laughs> it's like yes <laughs> yes against lynching against lynching which is like i mean at this point it's not illegal as it should be, but it's still not illegal in some places, which just blows my mind. But he's literally saying, we don't want to do this. It's terrible, but we have to defend ourselves because what you're just, we're not just going to let you murder us. And if the government's not doing anything, well, here we are. We, we have second amendment rights too, because Hey, guess what? We're people now. And they weren't people within, within people's living memory of this happening. They weren't considered people. And it just, it, it just doesn't, it doesn't seem to change at all. But this really, really, this story really got, yeah, really resonated with me. I could see the points of what they were trying to draw parallels to. But even if we're just talking in the historical context and not getting political like I have been, I apologize. <laughs> um, you know, just within its historical context, this is, you know, Decades and decades after the 13th Amendment has taken place, after they've lost almost a million people due to civil war, why are they still fighting this? Like, why, why, why is there this need in government to suppress this? And I think it gets put on communism in a way. And communism ends up with all of those things we've talked about. It's it's not it's not great. Like it's a good it's a good idea in theory. It just doesn't really pan out the way that I don't think Marx and Engels had intended it to be. At least that's not the way that it's going to go with the Soviet Union with Stalin. But I think we kind of group communism into this, oh, it's bad because these these are the early days of communism in the United States. It's fighting for civil rights. It's fighting for well, anti-lynching, like, let's not murder people, but the standing government says that it's okay because, well, they like the way things are. And so to me, it was just, that really resonated with why we have such a con bad connotation of communism from its outset is, is because it was supported by people that they didn't want in government that they still don't want in government. <laughs> um, and we are. Well, I think there's, there's, the, the great hypocrisy in all of this, right, is a lot of people's arguments against communism is that it's rooted in violent uprising. But in 1919, you have large scale violence against marginalized groups, which prompts a an equal equally violent response as well. And then that is used as the example of why this is bad. You see what I'm saying? Like, so, you know, it. <laughs> You have you have people saying communism is a violent uprising. You're going to violently take people's property from them and distribute it to other people. And this 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 is completely against our way of life. This is completely against what we stand for in the country. But at the same time, in 1919, you have 
lynchings happening all over the country wide scale, then you have violent response. And then that violent response, that quote unquote self-defense is what is condemned. It's not necessarily the, the lynching itself. So what does that say about the state of things at that point? I mean, if you don't if you can't fight for yourself, and you don't have you don't have a political representation to fight for you. What the hell are you supposed to do? What are you supposed to do? That's my question. Exactly. So let's talk about let's talk about the turning point, because we talked about in World War II, Stalin is the United States. The Soviet Union is an ally to the United States. You know, the United States, England, uh, you know, you have the the um, anti uh, Nazi movement run by Charles de Gaulle uh, in France. And then you have Stalin. So these are our major allies. Right. And we win World War Two. Yay. Victory in Europe, victory in Japan. And then what, what, what's the turning point here? The war ends, and all of a sudden, now the Red Scare begins. You have what, what's going to happen is you need to rebuild Europe, okay? And you're going to have Stalin bankrolling many Eastern European countries to install communist government heads. You have the United States. You have Truman with his Marshall Plan. You have the United States funneling uh, money into Germany, into France to help rebuild these places that have been completely devastated by war. So that starts to create this this tension. You have two countries who are essentially battling for the rebuild rights, right? How are you going to influence? Because if you're rebuilding a country, you have serious influence over how they're going to progress after that, right? So the United States is like, oh shit, this communist, this Joe, Joe, Uncle Joe is about to take over the damn world. So we've got to stop this. So one of my favorite things from that documentary, uh, the American Reds documentary, is the footage of J. Edgar Hoover speaking, I think, uh, for, I forget what committee he's speaking for, but he it, this is televised, and this is what he says. And I'm going to try and sound like J. Edgar Hoover. Okay, so so feel free to laugh at me. Their goal is the overthrow of our government. Communist is not a political party. It is a way of life. It is an evil and malignant way of life, and it must be stamped out, you know? And so that's that's what's being televised to members of the United States in the early 50s, okay? Uh, you have Truman, Harry S. Truman, who makes government employees sign a loyalty pledge that they are not communists, okay? You have slogans coming out, posters everywhere, uh, better, better dead than red. I thought that was pretty interesting. And Jasmine, you saw one. What did it say? It's like clean air yeah, is clean for, commies. Is for commies. We don't want no clean air. <laughs> <laughs> clean air is for commies. Keep the railway strong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not just the battling over which countries are going to be communist versus capitalist. I think it's also they need a new enemy. They've just, you know, won this war. They fought it. It's defeated. Great. There's this like explosion of excitement and happiness but then it starts to sink in everything that everyone's lost and you've also had a lot of death a lot of people have lost loved ones and might be disillusioned by well why why were we fighting this war in the first place if this is just for land grabs or whatever and i know i'm not going to get into all the reasons we fought the second world war again all very legitimate reasons but at the end of it if you're just looking at who's going to be communist and who's going to be capitalist it could seem like you might have lost loved ones over what over countries that you don't live in and aren't going to affect you at least in people's opinion and that's just kind of what i see so i wonder if this push against against being communist against russia is so there's a new enemy to unite people like around well, it definitely doesn't help that Stalin detonates an atom bomb in Russia in 1949. So when when the when the Russians prove they're now capable of atomic bombs, people are people are really really scared. You know, and for good reason, right? We had just dropped two on Japan and it's nasty stuff. It's nasty business. So you have J. Edgar Hoover, you know, being televised saying these things about how communism is a menace. Communism is going to destroy American society as we know it. Right. And this is a period of intense patriotism. The United States people are you have what's what's commonly referred to as the great the greatest generation. 
right? And these people are seriously patriotic. And, you know, our, our ancestors are seriously patriotic at this time. And so you have a, you know, J. Edgar Hoover being televised saying these things. And then you have Senator McCarthy, I believe was a Wisconsin Republican senator, coming out in a full-scale attack on communism. And at that point, you know, communism was infil- apparently infiltrating all levels of American government and all different agencies. And it's essentially fear-mongering at the time. Um, but it's really J. Edgar Hoover who was behind this anti-communist movement. And you have the FBI start uh, tactics like wiretapping, uh, like following people, going to known either known or suspected communists' place, communist place of work, just to ask questions. But what do you, what do you think is going to happen? You got an FBI agent who waltzes into your your factory, talks to your boss, and says, "Hey, have you ever heard uh, Jack saying anything about you know being the communist? Go Russia, go Soviet Union. I love Stalin. Anything like that?" Well, no. Okay, thanks. Just curious. What do you think is going to happen, right? You got J. Edgar Hoover who's who's saying these things. You have, obviously, this is going to have serious repercussions for anybody who's being a suspect, who's suspected of being a communist. So you have people that are being questioned um, about being communist, encouraged to give up their communist comrades, whether they actually are or not. And there's a lot of pressure put on on people and if they don't give up their friends and family they then have their lives destroyed and a lot of people give into that and of course this leads to a whole wild goose chase because most of the people that they're questioning aren't communist weren't communist certainly weren't you know russian spies or anything like that and it just leads to this whole big fear over you don't even want to mention it you don't want to look at it you don't want to be friends with anyone who who is involved with it well, this is this is the American purge. This is the American purge of the communists. And while it doesn't necessarily end up in in bloodshed, which I mean, I'm sure I'm sure if we looked hard enough, we could find examples of violence perpetrated upon known communists in the United States. However, it's this is essentially the equivalent. This is the stamping out of these political adversaries. Anyone who's subscribing to "Quote unquote," what's being called an evil and malignant way of life. So they, that that's completely twisting. I think the original message, and you have this horrific dictator Joseph Stalin that you can point to and say that is what you have to look forward to if you subscribe to what that communist over there is saying. It'll be another Joseph Stalin. Yeah. Well, and they tried it violently the first time in 1919. They tried the violence, and it still it still gained popularity it still gained traction and so they have to try different tactics now of course there's the fear of russian spies espionage we discussed this in our juliet points episode um they were calling it special work and you didn't know about it unless you were a spy according to many uh accounts of former communists you know or ex-communists uh so I mean, there. I won't get too much into that. Obviously, we talked about that last episode. But you know, this is a this is a big fear. They're everywhere. They're infiltrating. You know, your your neighbor down the street could be a commie and selling your secrets to Russia. Like it's getting to it's that at that point in the fifties and sixties. Oh, this is an interesting fact. After Pearl Harbor, the bombing of Pearl Harbor in nineteen forty two, twenty percent of the CPUSA enlisted in the army, the United States Army. 20%. I think that's pretty interesting, don't you? It kind of speaks to the other side of patriotism on behalf of, of the United States communists. And I think there's a major shift, too, in the Communist Party in the 30s that I forgot to mention from, you know, people being so scared of the revolutionaries. They go from revolutionary to reaction or uh, to reformist. That's I think that's how I heard it put. They go from reaction or revolutionary to reformist. And somewhere that narrative is lost but i think it goes back to you know i think a lot of people make the argument that okay well look at look at the communist manifesto this is their bible and it speaks to violent uprising however however can we not be intelligent enough to take out not necessarily the good part i mean what christians do it with the bible you don't you don't subscribe to everything you see in the bible if you did your life would be a living hell 
Uh, but like with it's the same thing with comedy. Can we not come up with another another party that represents a, a little bit more about who we are now? You know, with a little bit of collectivism while also still maintaining some form of individualism in the United States. I mean, can't we do that? Can we not just not have the two party system? Marx would be very proud of you right now because that was the whole idea was you were supposed to take his ideas from the 1840s and develop them. And honestly, that's what we were supposed to do in the United States, too. We were supposed to take the ideas that the founding fathers laid out for us and develop them and have constitutional conventions as a regular thing and develop ideas into something that suits us today. And we have not been able to do that anywhere. I mean, I, I can't give you an example of government in any country that's been able to evolve past its history. And I, of course, think history is incredibly important, but in the way that we should learn from it and be able to see what we've done and change it to suit the needs of what we collectively need. Well, I mean, I, even today, like, like in my own house, we still make jokes. Like I put ketchup on my hot dog and my husband's like, are you a communist? Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just, <laughs> yeah. it's like a running I'm joke. <laughs> yeah. Are, are you? Yeah. It, it's just, it's like a running joke. I mean, it's, I think most of what we associate negatively with the Soviet, at least as Americans, comes from Nikita Khrushchev. So he takes over really following Stalin's death. And then in 1956, he gives that speech. He gives a speech. Uh, it's supposed to be a secret speech that no outsiders are invited to. It's just core members of the of the um, Communist Party in Moscow, or at least in Russia. And he expounds upon Stalin's reign of terror. And he essentially, it's a really interesting speech, but there's a lot of lore. I, I'm going to call it lore associated with it. Like, while Khrushchev is giving this speech, apparently there are members who are, like, keeling over from heart attacks and like throwing up and and like falling all over themselves because of the, the the horror of what Khrushchev is describing. But I just read it, and I don't know if <laughs> I don't know if after like the horrors of World War II, like what he's actually describing, and it's pretty tame. So I think that you know, common theory is that Khrushchev gave this speech to consolidate power around him, right? And he goes on to be pretty powerful leader. He takes the Soviet Union through really the the highest points of tension with the United States in the Cold War. I think a lot of what we remember about the Cold War are the Khrushchev years. Just a really interesting watershed moment. I think after after uh, Nikita Khrushchev's, uh, and I don't think I'm saying his name right, so apologies. After his speech, I think the running totals at 70% drop in, in membership of the uh, American Communist Party. I think that's what what I read or what I what I heard, which is a pretty stark decline. And then you have an increase in in tensions between the United States and the Soviet Union. So it's I think a lot of negative feelings go back to that time. Yeah. And that's, again, like in living memory for. Well, some people, not us, but some people, a lot of people, mm -hmm. a lot of people like my grandmother was born in 1932. She lived through World War II. She lived through the Cold War. You know, my parents, my parents were both born in the late, you know, the late 50s, early 60s. So they're going to be they're going to be growing up and coming of age at a time when the Soviet Union is at its most threatening to the United States. So, I mean, you know, in our in our modern consciousness for at least our generation, you know, our parents, I think, were pretty scarred by that experience. So. I think it's only natural, you know, now we're now we're kind of breaking it down and really looking at the whole picture. We we have the benefit of hindsight, I think. I yeah, I think I think so. I I was just thinking when you were saying all of that is all of these systems are and I'm going to show a little bit more of myself. All of these systems are run off of patriarchal ideals and I wonder how different they would be if they were run off of matriarchal ideals. You know, like we have if we look at Native American tribes it, yeah, let's ask the Cherokees. Yeah, you know they they have matrilineal lines. There's matriarchs, and they run that way. And I've read numerous numerous documents from 
well, all different types of people who eventually would slaughter them, um, that said, essentially, they're living in heaven, they're living in an ideal situation. And I wonder how true that is. And again, I, you, you know, you can't. Yeah, who was their PR person? Yes. <laughs> um, I, I think, you know, there's still obviously, if you're holding one group above another, there's going to be oppression in some sense. But what did that actually look like? Was was there oppression in the same way that we see it today? Is is there is there a way around that? Why haven't we tried a matriarchy? <laughs> like you know, there's yeah yeah. I think I I would like to see a little bit more of that and try things. I I mean, you don't know how they're gonna fan out because of people and how different people are until you try them. But well, I think fear fear is what prevents progress. Fear. And fear mongering are what prevent, I think, are what cause serious reactionary events and violence to take place. It's fear of being killed, fear of not being able to have what you want, fear of your family not being able to have a bright future. So it's, I think it really just comes down to having the courage to change and try things in a different way. And also the fear to face the past. Well, and fear of being wrong, because I think we can try these things. And if we're wrong, it's it's really hard for us to admit that and say, well, we tried this. It didn't work. I'm sorry. It was wrong. Like, it, you know, it's it's the courage to go through and actually do something. Uh, and and I'm, obviously, I'm, it's in, it's intensely complicated to to formulate political yeah, we're we're the lay people here, right? We're just encouraging thought. We're not trying to formulate a new society here. However, it is important to for the layperson to think in depth about these issues versus being spoon-fed things that you hear and see on social media or major news networks that shall remain nameless or anything like that. You know, it's it's about can we read things from the past and make up our own minds about them? Can we change? Can we take things that have been given to us examples in the past and make them our own and make a better society? Can we do these things? Well, people have been doing it for centuries. And I bet we'll, we'll, I don't, I will say this. There has never been a better time to be alive than right now in this moment. Okay. And in 10 years, it'll be the same case. We, we just keep getting better, but it does take honesty it takes bravery it takes the courage to exactly what you were saying to try things and if they don't work so the fuck what you know i mean it's we just got to keep going we just got to keep going and remember that your fellow countrymen are not your enemies that we can all be we can all exist together there's not a finite amount of success to go around I think that's that's my main point. There is not a finite amount of success to go around. We can all be successful and, you know, and we can all follow our dreams as long as we have somebody to work the infrastructure. <laughs> yeah, well, I think that meme is particularly uh, pertinent here where it's talking about rights and it's like rights are not a pie. You know, just because someone else gets some doesn't mean you have less. And that goes with quite a lot, quite a lot of things. It's not just rights. It's you know, just because someone else has a little bit of success doesn't mean that you have less success. It, it's not like a finite number of successful people out there. So I will say this. I I I know a, a, at least people that I discuss these types of things with. The, the, the most frightening thing is handing money to the government who, who will most certainly bungle it. <laughs> You know what I mean? That's I think that's the fear, right? Like I'm all for, you know, making a better world, but it's like we got to make sure that when we put our money in the hands of these people, where is it going? Can we see it? Where's the transparency? Because just pouring more money, putting more money, throwing more money at the at the problem doesn't necessarily fix the problem. You got to make sure that it's being used wisely. So, the, you know, you want you want to slow something down or bungle it, put it in the hands of the government. That's the surest way to do that. So how how do we I don't know. Do you do you break the wheel or do you do you renovate the wheel? Well, and that's been the question with all all of this. That's been, you know, how do you do that? And I don't know the answer, but I do know that most people I talk to, they don't completely align with one party or another. So I don't think our two party system is particularly doing much for people. 
yeah, where are my moderates out there? Yo, all the moderates, come on out. Let's let's be moderate together. (laughs) (laughs) Shit. (laughs) Yeah. It's just a giant pendulum. It goes back and forth. And I think that is extremely parallel to the Communist Party in the United States, right? Going back and forth between the revolutionary fervor and just wanting to reform the current system. So that is essentially the same the same conversation that we just had. Thanks everyone for listening today. If you want more, please follow us on the Good Old Days Pod on Instagram and Facebook. We're also on Twitter at the Good OD Pod, and you can email us with any questions or well future episode suggestions at the good old days pod at gmail.com and please if you liked this episode and you want us to continue putting out great content rate us five stars on apple podcasts or whatever platform that you're listening to we so appreciate all the support we've gotten so far and look forward to bringing you many many more episodes that was beautiful goodbye everyone bye